As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. That is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardenings of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you.
folks who just heard and saw the entire fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians was put together by our videographer here on staff, Jeremy Scholl, and one of our staff members, Morgan Arsenault. Can you thank them for their great work? We're looking at Ephesians 4 today. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at a small portion of what you saw there. For guests uh, who are here today, my name is Wayne. It's my privilege to be part of the pastoral team, and I'm um, looking forward to spending some time with you. If you don't own a Bible, you'll find this one on the pew rack in front of you. And I would be honored if you'd take it home as our gift to you today. Seriously, you take that home. If you don't have a Bible, that's yours from now on. All right? Write your name in it and uh, cross out where it says First Christian if it says First Christian in it, okay? And you can own it. We'd be very glad for that. While you're looking for Ephesians chapter 4, um, just a, a brief note, if I, if I may, that will help us get into our conversation today. Our family loves to be in the water. From, from the time we, you know, Les and I were first married, we've been people who go to the beach, we go to the pool, our kids, we taught them to swim, you know, before they were two years of age, like lots and lots of time in the water. Um, even before we moved to Decatur, back when the kids were very tiny, we would go and spend some time each summer on the beaches of North Carolina out by Leslie's parents' house, her parents' home. And um, the kids learned how to manage the waves and body boards and boogie boarding. That's a picture. Ben and I used to get up at about 6 o'clock in the morning. This is just a little bit north of Myrtle Beach in a little island called Topsail Island. And we'd go out 6 in the morning. That's probably after he's taken a tumble because he's not supposed to be down that deep in the water at about... It's about 15 years of age there, I think. And we have, I mean, seriously, we spent a lot of time at the beach. In 2005, when we went to Australia to visit family, you'd think if you're going to go all that way to visit family, you got two weeks. We spent about a week with the family, maybe seven or eight, nine days. But we took a period of three or four or five days, I don't recall, and we went off by ourselves and rented this tiny non-air-conditioned cabin up on the northern beaches of, of north of, of, of Sydney, and it was burning hot, but... We were out there in the waves every day. It was wonderful. Uh, so we've had all those kinds of experiences in the water. It's kind of been our pattern and our habit. Uh, in 1980, let me think this, 1985, Les and I were in South Africa on a musical tour there, and we were there for three months. We were in Durban uh, on the coast, which is on the west coast of South Africa, pardon me, the east coast of South Africa for, I don't know, 10 days or so, out on the beach there one day, and man, I got dumped by a wave. It was probably about eight feet up, and it just went out from underneath me, and I went right there, my head took all the skin off my forehead. So we've had some wonderful times at the beach. <laughs> I want to tell you a story, though. Um, I recall being at Daytona Beach many years ago now, on behalf of the church. It was, it was late winter, March, maybe coming into spring, not very warm weather, but I was down there doing something. I was on, in a hotel right on the, right on the beach, and uh, there was an afternoon off, so I thought, well, you can't come to Florida and be on the beach and not get in the water. And who cares if there's nobody else in the water in March? You know, I'm, I'm a Kent. We get in the water. So I went out and got in the water, and it was cold, let me tell you, and I got hit by a riptide that I'd never experienced ever before. Now, you may have been out on the beach where you, in the water where you can feel the water pulling underneath your feet, and this was, I mean, I knew not to panic, but I knew that this was going to take me for a ride. And so I did what you're supposed to do. You let it carry you away. I got on my back, and I just floated with it and kind of got pushed out a long way from the shore. I don't know, long time, 15, 20 minutes out there. 
just floating. Now, some of you are not good swimmers, that's freaky, but it's not so, the sharks aren't that close yet. But nonetheless, and you know to go out there and just let it carry it where, carry you where it needs to go, and then the rule is once it stopped swirling around you, then you swim, so I swam parallel to the shore for probably two or 300 yards, and then came back in. And I, I remember walking up the beach and getting and sitting on a, on, a, on a chair on the pool deck, and that's when the shaking and the fear set in, you know, after the fact, because I, I, I was, what just happened? I've never had that happen before. I mean, I've been caught in big waves, but what was with that? What if I didn't know the routine? What if, I, if my experience on the beach was new? What if I couldn't swim well over here? What if the waves had really caught me, if you know what I mean? You've asked those sorts of questions of yourself in the past, maybe not in the middle of swimming, but in the middle of a difficult moment, when the waves of life, if you will, are crashing around you, what do you do? How do you know how to respond? What does the Bible have to say about figuring out life in the midst of difficulty? Where can you get information? Where can you get some teaching so you can have some clarity of mind for your setting? You've faced that somewhere along the way. Today, we're going to see what Scripture has to say to help us in that. What we're doing here today is carrying on with our series that we're looking at, the sermon series throughout all of August, reviewing Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what's behind my thinking on this, if I can tell you. This, we're about to step into, across, if you will, step into a new portion of our church's life together, start a new chapter of fall programming for the season is coming. And um, I want to make certain that as new people are arriving in the life of the church, that everybody understands who we are as a congregation. And so uh, we want to answer this question. What are the pillars? What are the standing supports of our church to bring us where we are today and will carry us in the days ahead? We have some core values, things we believe deeply here. First of all, we believe that we respond to God's word. That's our first and primary core value. And then after that, that we encounter the Holy Spirit, that we embrace change, and that we build community. And last week, we looked at why and how we adhere to Scripture and uh, today I want to talk to you about this emphasis of responding to the work of the Holy Spirit and how it gives you and me and our church courage when there's lots of swirling going on. So read with me Ephesians chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. Paul the apostle is, write, is writing. Paul is the premier theologian of the New Testament, if you will. And he's writing to a church that he loves in a city called Ephesus. He's in prison as he writes and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So I want you to notice right off the bat here that this is a call on this prisoner, he's in prison for his faith, he's calling, hey, you church that I love, it's a call to unity and peace. I want you to be people of one spirit and one body, one Lord, one faith. Do you notice where he says in verse, in, uh, verse 3, make every effort, make, do all you can, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he jumps into that powerful statement that we really examined last week where it says, would you read it up from the screen with me together, please? There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And you go, okay, that's nice. That's the Bible. That's nice that everybody's one. But you say, if that's the case, why are there always disagreements in churches? Why are people arguing about this, that, and the other? Why are there so many different crazy personalities? No, I'm not talking about this church, of course. Yeah, you get it. Why are there always some people who are louder than others? For that matter, why are there so many churches? If we're one body together with one spirit, what's with that? Well, let me remind you again what happens here because Paul, as he's talking about one body, one spirit, he pretty quickly brings Jesus into the picture. He said, there is one body, one spirit, just as you, there is one hope to the hope you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he immediately goes, and to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Right away, when he starts talking about this oneness and the unity, he steps into what Jesus did. Now, this morning, I want to tell you what Jesus did through the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's pretty, frankly, pretty tough thinking. So you're going to need to put your thinking caps on and hold them down tight because I want to talk about waves and riptides and unity in the church and the way in which the Holy Spirit pulls all that together, and sometimes it's hard. So think deeply with me this morning, okay? Think deeply with me where it says, but each one of us has received grace as Christ apportioned it. You know, within the New Testament, that word grace, uh, the word is charismata in Greek. Sometimes it can be interpreted grace, sometimes it can be interpreted gifts. But when you think about it, gifts are grace, right? And grace is a gift because you don't receive gr- grace and you don't get a gift by anything you've done. Somebody just simply gives you a gift. If they, if they give you something, then you say, well, I worked for it. That's not the gift, that's payment, right? No, these are gifts, these are graces that... God gives through the work of his Holy Spirit, and um, apparently, if you read the New Testament, it says that there are differing gifts given to different people, and it appears in differing measures depending on the needs of the people in the situation. I, you, you, this really, you've seen this work before. You saw it even this week in the Olympics, right? There are lots of people in this room who would, you'd consider yourself a swimmer, maybe a good swimmer, but... Who you're kidding? I'm a swimmer, but even with hard work, I'm not going to be Michael Phelps. I don't have that natural ability. Speaking of Phelps, can I just... <laughs> Did you see him and that LeClo guy on Tuesday night? Do you know who I'm talking about? Okay, so here's the scene. It was about 15 minutes before the 200-meter semifinal butterfly, okay? This, where they're doing this, okay? Hard, hard swimming move. Okay, and Phelps, they're in the room waiting where they're sort of warming up, but for Phelps to warm up is to put this hat on and headphones and be really quiet and pull everything in. And his key rival, this Chad LeClo guy from South Africa who beat him in 2012, is in the room with him, right close to him, and he's shadow boxing, right? Well, here's a picture of it. Okay, and so they're this close, and he's going like this, and Phelps was not amused. Look at the face he's making. <laughs> so the moment that face showed up on television, the internet went wild with people giving all kinds of captions or so-called memes. And I thought, hey, do you want to know what some of them are? 
That's the face you make when you're almost about to catch a rare Pokemon <laughs> and your battery dies. That's the face you make when you learn that guac is an extra charge. That's the face you make when you discover that 19 golds is not enough after all. Some of you are going, I don't get any of this. Well, I'll explain it to you later if I have to, okay? That's the face you make when Kanye interrupts your medal ceremony. Ooh, okay, some of you go, what? Taylor Swift, all that sort of stuff, all right? That's the face you make when you realize a good portion of the country may not accept the results of this November's presidential vote. <laughs> or, that's the face you make when the wind is coming from the east and you're crossing over the Staley Viaduct. <laughs> Y'all got that one. Y'all got that. I digress, of course. You're going, what's this got to do with preaching? Nothing, but it's funny. <laughs> no, it really, here's the point. Scowl or no scowl, many of us can swim, but not to the degree of Michael Phelps, right? We can't do it. But scripture is very clear that we all have some sort of gift or grace that's given to us supernaturally by God. And swimming is not a supernatural gift, by the way, but it's nonetheless, they, with these supernatural gifts that come by God are life approaches or abilities that come differently to each individual as God's Spirit works it out best. These are Holy Spirit-driven gifts. That's one reason why we as a congregation say that we encounter the Holy Spirit, that that's a core value of who we are of this church. And here's why we emphasize this in terms of our perspective here at First Christian. Because we are quite convinced that by saying that we rely on the Holy Spirit, we are doing what Jesus wanted us to do. Can I tell you how this goes? Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would teach them and that the Holy Spirit would show them how to manage the waves of their lives that were coming and even the waves and the reptiles of their ministries which would soon begin to unfold within the months and years after his death. Now, they didn't like the fact that he was sending the Holy Spirit because if you know the story taken, for example, from John chapter 16, it's in the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry and he's just announced that, he's, that he is leaving they don't get yet that he's going to die, but they are distraught. And he says, I'm leaving and it's going to be different. And, and you know, they had to wonder. They had to be going, what's with this? We're just, we've just arrived in Jerusalem. We're on the cusp of some really incredible days. Life is good. We're getting the publicity we've been, we've been wanting and people are paying attention. And we're just about to step into the next level of ministry and it's going to be great. And Jesus comes along and says... Sorry, fellas, I'm out of here. But look what happened as a result of Jesus' willingness to leave. Read in John chapter 16 that Jesus said, When I leave, the Spirit will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. In other words, I'm leaving, but that's good, because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come and teach you for me. And 
I mean, in retrospect, we can see in a lot of the things that come as a result of Jesus' willingness to leave. We know of Calvary. We know of the redemption of the cosmos. We know of the personal forgiveness of sins. We know of the promise of heaven. But here's another reason why it was good for Jesus to leave the disciples and not be on earth. See, Jesus' ministry through the Holy Spirit is no longer limited to a specific time, a specific place, or a... A physical ability, if you will, to either hear Jesus' voice physically or to be personally touched by him with his actual hands. Now, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' teachings and his ministry is available to all. In other words, the Holy Spirit, unlike Jesus in an earthly body limited to one place, one time, the Holy Spirit is no longer limited in that way. Christians believe we can all hear the voice of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in us corporately as a group, as a church, and that you too, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we believe that you can hear the voice of God, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Because here's what happens. The Holy Spirit carries on the teaching, the healing, the caring, the challenging, the confronting, and yes, even the convicting ministry of Jesus. God teaches us and speaks to us as a body and as individuals. Did you know where you're sitting in your pew today, the Holy Spirit of God can speak to you? Absolutely. And some are going, well, if that's the case, how come when I think God's talking to me that my Holy Spirit sounds different than the guy across the, across the pew from me? You know, you, you're sitting in families, uh, many of you are at least, and you go, well, how is it that when we're faced with a situation, I feel like this is what God call, is calling our family to do, and, and I kind of feel that deeply, and yet my cousin or my sister or my spouse doesn't feel that way at all. How is the Holy Spirit, you know, bipolar? You know, dysfunctional? What's with that? Or who are we kidding? The same things happens in churches, doesn't it? We've got decisions before us, and how do you get consensus in all the congregation to agree? Here's an example. We have plans in play for a new auditorium, you know, and some are going to want to build it and some are not going to build it. And how do you decide that? What do we as a church do? And how, how can the Holy Spirit tell two different people two different things? What do we do as a church in that regard? Well, it goes back to what I stated last week. We always start with the Bible. The Bible is the bedrock of our collective decision-making process. It's why we say it's our number one core value, that we respond to God's Word. And then after that, we ask mature voices to speak into the life and the decisions of the church, expecting the Holy Spirit to give them wise counsel to give us. We have elders. We are a congregation that is now the size we are. We are staff-led and elder-protected. We staff tomorrow night are going to go before the elders and we're going to say, we're doing this, this, and this. Can you speak into these matters? Okay, and help us make right decisions. But beyond that, those elders also, we have a a couple of outside advisors who come in and periodically listen and ask questions about our mission and our core values, about our plans for the future. And I called one of them this week, Michael Tenike. He's a pastor out in Western Illinois at Pittsfield First Christian Church in Pittsfield. And I said, Mike, I didn't set him up. I didn't tell him what to say. I said, Mike, you know our congregation. What would be God's word for us today? You have to do it in less than two minutes on a video. Can you have it here by Wednesday, please? This is what he sent, okay? Take a listen. Greetings, my brothers and sisters at First Christian Church at Decatur. Pastor Wayne and I were talking this week, and he invited me to edify you in this important season of your church's journey. 
Now, God has certainly done great things in the past several years through the ministries and outreach of First Christian Church. And I want you to know, God's not done yet. Greater things remain. God has called you to help transform your city and your county through the knowledge of Him. What a privilege and honor to be part of that vision. Be encouraged in this. The greater the revelation of God, the greater the cost. What does this cost, you may ask? Well, commitment. Commitment to the vision God has birthed in you. Remember, it's not your vision. It is His. For His glory, for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth. My dear brothers and sisters, now is a time for faith, not fear. As I was praying for you, I was led to God's message to Israel through Moses about the land that they were called to go in and possess. It seemed like a daunting task, but God's message was one of faith, not fear. A faith in His calling and ability to do beyond their own. As God shared through Moses in Deuteronomy 31 verse 1, Allow me to edify you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. First Christian Church of Decatur, fear not. Remember, decisions motivated by fear lead to regrets and stagnation, but decisions based in faith lead to a manifestation of God's glory. Fear not. God bless you in your pursuit of Christ. Okay, one of the voices that speaks to our leadership team on a regular basis, saying this is what God's giving us. Here's why we listen and why we say, what is the Holy Spirit saying? Because we want you and we want the church to be mature in Christ, using the gifts that God has placed within you. It says, each one of us has been given this grace. Each one has this gift. We want to help you push back from the riptides that might carry your life in the wrong way or push back from the riptides that might carry our congregation in the wrong way. Paul, as he's writing here in Ephesians, gives us how that happens. Look with me beginning in verse 11. It says that Christ gave, and he lists five different gifts. Some call this the fivefold ministry. Some others call it the fourfold. Let me explain why. It says that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's five different types of people, if you will. Though in the New Testament, it's often the case that pastors and teachers are combined. So call it five or four, regardless. This is what they are there for to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That's why those particular gifts are there, and that's why those of us who are in leadership say, we want our people to become mature and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You have apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and other places in Scripture give other lists as well. And in total, there are probably more than 20 different lists, 20 different gifts that are given in these various lists. And you have, for example, you have gifts like administration that are mentioned in Scripture. You have gifts like giving and healing and speaking in tongues and words of knowledge and so forth and so on. And that's all really good, though. I think many of us are aware, if you've been in the 
a church for a long time, there can be problems at times when it comes to spiritual gifts. Here's why, because when each of us have a gift, we, we want to say, well, we tend to think of that God-given ability, ability, it's the most important, and we look at life through that specific lens. For example, those who have the gift of administration, they think, well, we need, you know, we should have more administration. Those who have the gift of mercy, mercy is one of the gifts that are listed in the New Testament. And they say, the church should have more mercy. Those who have the gift of speaking in tongues, want we want to hear everybody speaking in tongues or so forth and so on. And all that's fine because it can point to the plurality of a congregation, but it also points to where potential problems can come along. All the admin people getting together and demanding more admin. All the teaching people getting together with loud strident voices and saying, give us more teaching or else. See, here's what I've learned 30 plus years of ministry. Differing gifts don't always mean agreement, but when used properly by mature people, you can achieve great peace. Because if you'll notice here, a job description is given to me. Look with me again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. If I'm this pastor teacher, one of them that in our church that's mentioned here, what's my job is to equip Christ's people for works of service. Here's my job description. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and do what? Become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. My job is to help you become mature. So I need to ask, how am I doing on my job? <laughs> Man, I should have, I wish I'd had that in the other services as well. No. <laughs> Seriously, how am I doing on my job? Because if you're not growing in your maturity, then we have a problem. How are you doing in your maturity? Because look at what happens. If we continue reading in Ephesians 4, look at what happens when the whole body of Christ works together and we all grow up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, will no longer be infants. Now, some people in the past have translated that word infants as whirligigs or pinwheels will no longer be pinwheels tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. You know how a pinwheel could kind of blow everywhere, right? Will no longer be that way. Will no longer be blown by the cunning and the craftiness of people. Instead, instead of just being blown here, there, and everywhere and having the riptides carry us, instead, speaking the truth in love, we'll be, we will grow to become in every respect a mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, and from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself in love. Each part does its work. It goes back to that surfing bit back at Daytona Beach. Life has plenty of struggles. You know that, right? Church ministry and church life has plenty of struggles. Have plenty of riptides throughout all of that. Making it through as a mature Christian requires, well, you just got to grow up. You got to know when to swim parallel to the shore and when to swim back towards the beach. You're going to go home, many of you today, with an illustration of this that's going to last in your house maybe till four o'clock if we're lucky. All the kids are getting pinwheels <laughs> in their classes today. We wanted to emphasize their childhood joy and their amazement. And they're going to come out of class with these today. And we as, if, you know, we're called to enter into the kingdom of God like children. 
But we're also called to be people of spiritual maturity, not blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Children like pinwheels. That doesn't mean you should be one. You should be the adult. You should be the mature Christian, right? Allow a kid's pinwheel to be a pinwheel. Don't you be one. You can think of it this way. If you lack maturity, you're like this. You move when the wind blows, and when the wind doesn't blow, you stop moving and go. No longer are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and God pushing and pulling you along at all times. Instead, you're just kind of blown by the wind. And the result is that an immature Christian gets tossed about by waves and blown here and there by every wind that sometimes can blow as gales. You put a bunch of immature people together in a church or a family or a neighborhood. You add a little wind, a little bit of riptide, and it's not long if they're not mature, they're soon complaining about each other and then to each other. They start pecking at each other, they pick, they fight, they argue, and if you do that in a church, unity quickly disappears. You end up with a bunch of whirly gigs or pinwheels that should be amusing children. And you know how it is. If you get into that situation, people start sounding like children. They go, I want it my way. We as the body of Christ here at First Christian Church, we don't live like that, friends. That's not mature Christianity. I thought I'd show you. You've been wondering what this is over here, right? We thought we'd show you what immature Christians who get blown about by the wind look like. See if we can get this to go. Look at that. I'll have you know I spent $34 on that on Amazon.com. I don't know what I'm going to do with it after today. It might end up in your garage sale, but nonetheless... This is a picture of immature Christians being blown by every wind of false teaching and doctrine. What Ephesians says, don't live this way. They peck at each other, they look down at the latest fad, and they mistake that fad for a work of the Holy Spirit, and they pay attention to the wind of false teaching, and they get overrun by tall waves. We're not going to live there, friends. We're not going to make that kind of noise. Instead, our reliance is this. We will encounter the Holy Spirit. It comes from a desire to hear God, to hear fresh news, of course, but always bound within the context of how Scripture directs us. And friends, don't peck at each other. Don't peck at the things that are wrong in the middle of the waves that might come along. Instead, Join with what Scripture says in tandem with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So you can be this, which I think they cost five for three cents is what we paid for them or something like that. They're going to last till 4 o'clock, probably, in most of your homes, right? Who are we kidding? You can be that, please. 
Or we can be the body of Christ saying, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to live. Would you stand and let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, for my friends in this room here today, I pray that you would help us to be one body who follow one Lord, who experience one baptism, who declare together as one God and Father over all of us. Lord, maybe there's some in the room here today who don't yet know you. Uh, I pray they would make a decision to step into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ and then to step into this great adventure we have together to do life without pecking, to do life without just looking down and looking for fads, but more so, God, looking to you as the author of our faith, looking to scriptures to unfold that faith as the Holy Spirit works in each of us. And Lord, we want to speak life into each other through the work of your Holy Spirit, not struggle. Lord, as we step into a new season of life together with the fall in front of us, enable us to be one people, one congregation that wants to impact this city in powerful ways, God. We are asking you to not only make that challenge in front of us, but help us to live it out daily. May we live it out in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, God. In Christ's name, amen.